Thank you, Greg. What Greg said is uh, true. I'm actually looking forward to getting up to uh, Tacoma, Washington and going to seminary so I can get some rest. But um, it's a great privilege to have been selected to uh, participate in this uh, Spurgeon Fest. Um, I want to uh, thank the college for the opportunity to have attended here for the last four years. For any of you who uh, are thinking about maybe dropping out of college next year, let me give you a word of exhortation. It is much more difficult the second time around. When you get older and married and have the cares of life, it uh, is a little tricky to take 18 units and, and get out of school. So, like the man said, it's always too soon to quit. Take advantage of the great opportunity you have here to attend this, uh, this fine college. Can God help you? That's perhaps the key question facing religion. Assuming that there is a God, is He able to aid and give assistance to those who claim to be His followers? Several years ago in his book, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, Rabbi Harold Kushner answered the question, no. For him, God was limited in both power and His ability to foresee all and all of the various complexities of life. To Kushner, God is something like a man who sets up an elaborate model train set and then loses the instructions and forgets where the various train tracks lead to. He made this clear in his book when he said, God would like everyone to get what they deserve in life, but he can't always arrange it. Now, admittedly, Kushner had approached this problem from the viewpoint of a non-Christian. But for many Christians, the question is the same. Can God help me? Even those people who are uh, truly saved often face times of trauma in their own lives. Times when they wonder and doubt if God really cares. And if He does care, can He do anything to help me? This is the crux of life. This is what uh, Dr. Vernon McGee used to call where the rubber meets the road. When we go to church, do we worship in doubt, wondering if we worship a God who can help us? Or do we worship in confidence, knowing, as the friends of Daniel said, our God is able to deliver us? Now, to answer that question, we need to go on a little journey today. And on that journey, we're going to meet a man who as he approaches to worship God, asks the same question. Our traveling companion both asks and answers his own question, and in that answering and asking, he gives us the text of the 121st Psalm. Turn to Psalm 121. Let me read these eight verses for you. I will lift my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. The 121st Psalm is the second 
of the 15 psalms called the Songs of Ascents, or the Songs of Degrees. Now, this psalm breaks down very nicely into three main parts. In verses 1 and 2, the psalmist asks the question, and he also provides the answer. Verses 3 and 4, he talks about God as anchor and guard of your life. And then in verses 5 through 8, he talks about God as your keeper. Now, the Psalms of Ascents were a special group of Psalms that were apparently used by the Jewish people as they traveled up to Jerusalem. Remember, in Exodus 34:32, the children of Israel were commanded to go to Jerusalem three times a year to attend the great feast, Pentecost, Passover, and Tabernacles. As these groups would approach the city, these 15 psalms would be sung and at different stages of the journey. These times of feast would be exciting, festive. They would be times of great happiness as the people of God went to the temple to worship Yahweh. This is the same God who had called their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The same mighty God who had delivered them from Egypt, performing great miracles showing His awesome power. The same God who had defeated their enemies before them in the Promised Land. He was the same God who had placed David on the royal throne. And most of all, He was the God who had made a covenant with them that they would be His people and He would be their God. Through their faith in Him, which would be demonstrated by their obedience, He would keep them secure in His hand in life and in eternity to come. For our companion, though, as he travels... He's wondering. All these things happened so long ago. He's questioning the ability of God to handle these things. Things are a little faded now in his own eyes. He's been coming up to the temple for many years now, since he was a small child. There were great problems in the land. People weren't obedient to God. People were following other gods. God had even sent judgment on His own people in the land. In His own life, there were all the problems and complexities that are just part and parcel of man's existence. Problems of family, of friends, of work, the various cares of His own life, which, although are different in nature than ours, they're really not so much different in scope. Problems have been part of man's existence from the beginning. He comes up to the temple, looking at the hills as he approaches Jerusalem, looking at the city, looking at the temple of God, and he asks this question, can God help me? As he approaches, he gives voice to his thought, and that is the beginning of the 121st Psalm. Our friend stops and he looks upward and he asks the question, I will lift my eyes to the hills. He's looking to the temple. He's looking to the city. Where does my help come from? He asked the same question that you and I asked today. Where does our help come from? Where does your help come from? Does it come from your family, your friends? Perhaps you're financially secure. Perhaps you're resting in the knowledge that you're a student here at the Master's College. Or you're a member of a particular church. Is your security in being a citizen of the United States? Is your security in your abilities, your physical, intellectual, artistic abilities? People try to draw their strength from all of these things. 
In the Old Testament and even today, the Jewish people have rarely trusted God for their help, but rather have relied on their own skill and help that they have sought to obtain through various uh, political maneuvers. The Christian life is often marked by a failure to turn to God for help. We are, as one writer put it, like so many drunks in a fog, stumbling from one gimmick to the next and all the time wondering why the world laughs at our witness of the Savior. For a child of God to trust in anything other than God for help, for help and deliverance is to blaspheme and degrade the name and the power of God. Exodus 23 says, You shall have no other God before me. Now our friend, after a moment of thought and reflection, realizing that he's on the verge of denying God, recalls all of these wonders of the past. And he answers his question, from whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord, the all-powerful, covenant-keeping God. And here's the key phrase, who made heaven and earth. The phrase, who made heaven and earth, is very interesting. Many times in Scripture, when the character or nature of God, whether it deals with His goodness or His justice or His power is questioned, answer is often given in the Scripture to the fact that He made heaven and earth. An example of this is seen in Job. Now, for many of us, we read Job and we read about his trials, his tribulations, and generally we stop at chapter 2. We see that Job has lost virtually everything that a person can take comfort in, his children, his wealth, his uh, possessions, his health. He's a hurting, hurting man. At the end of chapter 2, though, he's still not sinned with his lips. And usually from there we go nonstop right to the end of the book and we see him restored. We see him praising God and giving honor to the name of God. When we do that, we miss the middle and really the meat of the book. Remember after chapter 2, Job's friends came to him to comfort him. Now in the mindset of their day... God always punished evil and always rewarded good. Now, since Job was so obviously being punished, they had to come to the conclusion that Job had done something evil, that he had sinned. And that's the way they approached the the problem for him. But Job examines his own heart, his own life, and he comes to the conclusion, I haven't sinned. I examined my life. I find no sin in me. But Job believes the same thing that his friends did, that God punishes the ungodly and rewards the righteous. So how does Job account for what's happened to him? He comes to the conclusion, like Kushner did, that God had made a mistake. Look at Job chapter 31, verses 35 and following. Job says, in the distress of his heart, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me. That my prosecutor, viewing God as a prosecutor, had written a book. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder and bind it on me like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. Job is uh, questioning God. 
Again, in Job 13.3, he says, But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to reason with God. God's made a mistake here. If God and I can sit down and work this thing out and talk about it, God will realize that, that He's overseen something here. He's overlooked a problem here and let me slip through the cracks. But I'm sure if I bring it to His attention, He'll be able to make everything okay. Finally, in Job 27.2, he says, As God lives, who has taken away my justice, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter. Again, he sounds like Rabbi Kushner, wondering why God has allowed these things to happen and if God was really in control. Finally, after Job and his friends have had their say, God speaks. The answer God gives to Job is interesting. God does not explain himself to Job, but simply asks the question in chapter 38, Where were you when I laid the foundations of earth? After this, God spends the next two chapters declaring the wonders of his power in creation. He is the God who made heaven and earth. That's the final answer. The God who made everything can be trusted in everything. The lesson of Job illustrates our passage in Psalm 121. The God who created all can be trusted in all. In 2 Chronicles 20.12, we have another illustration of this. The people of Judah said in verse 12, Oh, our God, will you not judge them? These are the armies of Ammon and Moab who are encompassing the city. We have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. This, my friends, is where God wants us at all times. Realizing that we are powerless and planless against the enemies around us, but that we are looking to Him for ourselves, for our help. That is the essence of faith. We don't wish the problems away by positive thinking. We don't shift the problems away with psychology or name it and claim it in an exercise of false and pretentious faith. We look to God who made heaven and earth. In commenting on this verse, Spurgeon said, Help is on the road and will not fail to reach us in due time. For he who sends it was never known to be late. After so clearly answering the question in verse 1, our companion continues to expand on the idea, Can God help you? Now notice here the transition from verse 2 to 3. He's satisfied. He asks where his help is going to come from. He takes comfort in the fact that his help is going to come from the Lord. He now in verse 3 shifts and begins to explain perhaps to his traveling companions, you and I who are walking along with him. And he says, he will not allow your foot to be moved. He, will keep, he who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. To be securely footed, in verse 3, is perhaps the greatest of all assets. Uh, the most powerful warrior can be killed if he stumbles and loses his footing. The greatest athlete with the most ability, the most skill, the fastest runner, will not win the contest if he loses his balance and sprawls to the ground. I know it's been true in my life, and perhaps it's been true in yours, that 
when the trials, the afflictions, the problems of life come and have failed to trust the Lord for sure footing and security and tried to better my own position by moving about, looking for firmer ground, I end up, as the psalmist says, in sinking sand. Our companion also gives us the assurance that the God who made heaven and earth, who created everything, does not sleep. God never takes a nap. Um, he never has his attention diminished through weariness or a need to restore himself. Now, nobody's here, and this happened so long ago that uh, I can't get in trouble anymore for it. Uh, oh, but several years ago, my partner and I, working uh, accident investigation, um, were driving, working the morning watch about 2 in the morning. We were driving up in the hills of West Los Angeles, and we came across a strange sight. Came across the police car uh, that had all the windows rolled up, the lights turned off, parked in a, a dark little corner of of the uh, hills. Now, knowing policemen the way I do, being one of them, I knew exactly what was going on. They had decided to take a nap. Uh, at that time of year, hibernation would probably be closer to the uh, idea of what was going on. And I'm a lover of good jokes. And I always seek to take advantage of every situation I can to try to stay one step ahead. And with this uh, situation presenting itself, I couldn't resist the temptation to have some fun. So I convinced my partner to um, go along with me. We parked a ways away and got out of our car, walked very, very quietly up to theirs. Now, after we assured ourselves that they were taking a sound, sound nap, we began to disassemble their police car. Now, if you can imagine this, we took the light bar on their police car and completely removed it, took the four or five hundred little pieces apart, set it out in front of their car, opened up the hood of the trunk of their car, let all the air out of the tires of their car, and very quietly slipped off into the night. Now, none of you would ever think of doing a thing like that, but I would. Now, these, you can just imagine when these poor fellows woke up, these guys who were supposed to be protecting everybody had needed to be protected of themselves from the other policemen, me. Because they'd gone to sleep and had lost the uh, ability to perceive circumstances around them, when they woke up, a whole new set of circumstances, things that they could not even begin to comprehend and have to this day not comprehended. <laughs> because I do value my safety and do not enjoy retaliation. Um, they were unable to cope with the uh, situation, to put it mildly. The verse says here that this never can happen to God. God does not take a nap. He doesn't fall off, take a nap, and wake up to be presented with a whole new set of circumstances that he did not anticipate and now has to scurry around and work into his plans. God is not like the false gods that Elijah encountered on Mount Carmel. Remember when the priests of Baal 
were trying to get their God to consume the sacrifice and altar. They jumped and hollered and yelled and screamed to no avail. Elijah mocked them in, in 1 Kings 18.27. He said, cry with a loud voice, for he is a God. Either he is meditating or he is busy or he is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and is in need of being woken. This is something that never happens with our God. He is always alert, on duty, and available. Nothing has ever taken him by surprise. There is no event in your life and my life which he has not completely foreseen. Because of that, God can be trusted as your keeper. Now, in the longest section of this psalm, verses 5 through 8, the text reads this. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall keep you. It's the same word there. You might have preserve or something like that. But keep is the idea that runs through this section. He shall keep your soul. The Lord shall keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The Hebrew word shamar means to keep, to have charge, to watch over, to, to obligate yourself to the care and security of someone or something. God has placed Himself as your keeper. The lives and destinies of His people, your life and your destiny, if you're one of His children, is in His care. In the New Testament, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.3, The Lord is faithful who will establish you and keep you from the evil one. In 1 Peter 1.5, Peter says, Kept by the power of God through faith. Finally, at the conclusion of his very short epistle, Jude says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Our God, who created heaven and earth, will keep you secure. Now there's two aspects to the keeping of God. It has both a temporal and eternal quality to it. In verse 5 and 6, the text says, The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Now, in ancient times, armies were normally always made up of right-handed people. Uh, a person who was left-handed tended to foul everything up. My wife's not here, so I can say that. Um, because he'd swing his sword the wrong way and be more dangerous to his own battle line. In fact, for all you left-handed people... In Judges 20.16, a special note had to be made regarding the warriors who, was, who were left-handed so they could be kept in a special regiment of their own so they wouldn't be a more danger to their own forces. So they could all swing together. Now, the normal right-handed, I use that term advisedly, the normal right-handed people, like me, um, carried a sword in their right hand and a shield in their left, which meant their right side was exposed. God is saying that in the battles, He will be your shield at your right hand. The word shade, shield, the same kind of thing. God will protect your exposed side. He'll protect all of you, but He'll protect your exposed side is, is the figure here. 
God cares for the physical needs of His people, whether it's the scorching heat of the day or it's the cold and dampness of the night, which in many cases in that land was, was more dangerous than the heat of the day. Nothing that happens is outside of His master plan because all the resources that He Himself has created are available to you. God also brings His limitless power to play on the behalf of His people. Psalm 19.1 states that the created universe are simply the fingerwork of God. The handiwork, like knitting, like crocheting, like painting a picture. The strong right arm work is the salvation that our Lord provides and the keeping of His saints. Besides the temporal keeping of God, there is an eternal keeping. Verse 7 again states, The Lord shall keep you from all evil. He shall keep your soul. Now, one of the points of Calvinism, which I don't much care for, is the concept of P in, in Tulip, the perseverance of the saints. I remember once serving on the board of our church, we were interviewing a man to be the uh, senior pastor. We had a, a vacancy in that position. And he came in and uh, we kind of knew within the first minute or so that he was not the man for our church. Um, he basically summed up his ministry by stating that he taught the five points of Calvinism as the foundation for all of his preaching and ministry. Uh, he got rather disinterested looks from those of us that were interviewing him. And he kind of was at a loss for what to say. And he says, well, you, you do believe in the five points, don't you? And I spoke up, as I am wont to do for those of you who know me, um, and said that, uh, well, I'm not too keen on the on the idea of the perseverance of the saints. And he said, well, he was shocked. He, he thought he'd come to the wrong church, I guess. And he says, asked me if I thought people would lose their salvation. I said, no, not at all. I told him that I didn't think people would lose their salvation, but I didn't think the saints were going to persevere at all. The saints of themselves can do nothing. The saints are going to be kept by God and God alone in His power, as we've already seen in Jude. The saints will not persevere. But God, who is all-powerful, who created heaven and earth, will keep them. The psalmist concludes by covering all the bases in verse 8. The Lord shall keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. At the conclusion of the Gospel of Matthew, Christ said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of this age. To look back on my own life, it's a great comfort to see how Many times God has been watchful, even when I wasn't. When there is danger or distress, we can run to the shepherd, the good shepherd of John 10, for aid, even when there is, and even when there is danger that we do not see, either through our own carelessness or events that we don't have any ability to foresee, the shepherd is still there and never loses sight of any of his sheep. Now, in this message, I've used a little sanctified imagination, I guess, to put us in the place of the psalmist, to walk along with him as he traveled to worship, as he traveled to worship at the temple and to participate in one of the great feasts of his God. He was paralyzed initially by the question, can God help me? And he answered his own question. All of us have our own 
individual struggles, some great, some not so great. These struggles, James calls them trials, are like the scripture for our learning. God has decreed that we should be conformed to the image of his Son. And in this life, that is the process we call sanctification, growing to be more like him. In that process, we will not always know what to do, and we may even begin to doubt God, whether he cares or even if he can help us. That's what happened to Rabbi Kushner. If you know the story of his life, the great trauma and affliction and trials of his own life which led him to write that book. Trials which should have driven him to God instead led him to conclude that God simply didn't have the power to take care of the problems of his life. Now we know better. This psalm gives us the assurance that God who made heaven and earth will always be a present help in time of darkness. Now, I can't, and I don't think anyone else can, answer all of the questions that you might have regarding individual trials and troubles and things in your life. Those are in the hand of God. But I do know something of the character and power of God. I've seen God work in great and mighty ways in my own life, the lives of my friends, um, you don't have to live very long or be a policeman very long, but if you're confronted with the situation that I was once, when a man was standing from about me to that speaker, firing a 41 Magnum revolver at me and missing, that there's a God in heaven who controls... Bullets traveling 1,500 feet per second and can move them and will not let the safety of his people be compromised. One of my favorite writers is Oswald Chambers. He wrote several books, all of whom, all of which I think I have. And on a notepad on my desk, there's a quotation from one of his works that I want to leave you with. You may not know what you're going to do. You only know that God knows what He is going to do. Let's pray.